Hi, everybody, and welcome to this very special Point North one-shot lecture on High Noon, the 1952 Western classic, Western classic with a question mark, classic, indubitably, just a classic knockout movie. But I'm going to talk a little in the next hour about what defines the Western and why it is that High Noon pushes back against that definition in some really, really interesting ways. I should say, by means of introduction, of course, that this is the first Point North one-shot selected by one of my Patreon supporters, the wonderful Leslie McAdoo Gordon selected High Noon, and I'm very, very grateful to you, Leslie, because this is just a barnstormer of a film. This is a knockout of a film. It is... It is fascinating in, in so many different ways that I've had to carefully corral my thoughts, lest they become too fragmented as we move through. Because it would be really easy, I think, to talk about Kane as a character and to jump from there to the, the cinematography, to the provocative and urgent cinematography contained throughout this movie, to the technical innovation associated with this movie, to the score, back to the characters. You could jump around all over the place and never really get beneath the surface of High Noon, which is, at its heart, a deceptively complex and slow-moving film. It is a very careful study in character, a study of principle, a study of virtue, a study of frontier society and civilization, of course. It does, in some senses, what a very good Western ought to do, but ultimately comes down, well, we'll see if we all agree on where this story comes down by the end of the discussion here. I'm fascinated, actually, by those of you who, uh, those of you who, is, uh, who are here with me this afternoon, uh, whether or not you... Uh, have seen this movie before. Was this your first time watching High Noon before jumping into the lecture? Have you, in fact, not seen High Noon before jumping into the lecture? That would be fascinating, too. Um, oh, I, actually, uh, Rachel Malosh is asking here, I've never seen this movie, but live session I can actually be here for? You know what? I think you'll enjoy the movie all the more if you've seen it before. Certainly, my first exposure to High Noon was memorable, but only became memorable in the last 10 minutes of the film, perhaps. Up until that point, it is tense and it is fascinating. It is certainly well produced and well shot and well written and well directed and certainly well performed with some possible exceptions. But it was only in the last 10 minutes that I understood what it was that this story was doing. And I'm actually very grateful to look back at the story because I have said time and time and time again that some stories are only defined by their endings. It is only in the last movement of a story that you can genuinely say, well, this is what the story is about. If Star Wars ended 15 minutes before it did, then it would be about something very different. If Game of Thrones had ended after book four, then it would have been very different. If High Noon had ended 10 minutes earlier, if High Noon had ended in any other way, the entire shape of the story would have been fundamentally different. And I think that the shape of that story, as it unfolds according to our expectation, certainly conforms to our ideal of a classic Western. But ultimately, it is very different indeed. John Wayne said that not only was this movie not a Western, it was outright un-American, which is an unfortunate word when you think about the production history of High Noon, which we'll get to in just a moment. So this is a movie, I think, that, that demands to be watched again and again and again. It is a movie that unfolds in any number of, of beautiful details. Just watching it this last time, I had somehow never noticed that when Grace Kelly is standing at the window looking out at the street right before she takes the action that will define her turn at the end of the movie, the gun is hanging in the foreground. It is right there. It is impossible to miss. And yet, 
I have missed it every time that I've watched this film. So I'm fascinated by this entire deconstruction of, of the Western mythology of American myth in, a, in an interesting sense. Um, this deconstruction of character and certainly, as I said earlier, the, the interplay between civilization and the frontier because there is a sense, I think, in which High Noon is the story that happens right after every other Western, right after all conventional Westerns at some point, sooner or later, you're going to hit a high noon moment when civilization decides that actually it needs to free itself from its its foundation. It needs to free itself from the myths that defined it in the first instance. It's, yeah, just, just fascinating. Let me see here. <laughs> We've got so many comments here. Uh, Aaron is calling out Once Upon a Time in the West. Yeah, we'll probably do a quick, uh, a quick survey of the Western genre at some point. Um, it is fascinating. It is... Um, it is a quintessentially, and this is a complicated thing to say itself, of course, but the Western is a quintessentially American genre because it speaks specifically and with great purpose and oftentimes with great eloquence to the paradoxical conflict at the heart of American identity, to hope and burden, to abundance and lack, to principle and pragmatism, and of course, to society and the individual. These are complex, you know, paradoxical conflicts at the heart of all American identity, and they are played out on this epic canvas in the strongest Western stories, whether those are movies or novels or magazine stories. We'll talk a little bit about magazine stories in a minute. Yes. Um, Tom says, it's nice to be here at a live lecture. Can never make the there and back again ones with the Friday ones anymore. Sorry to hear that, Tom. Glad to have you with us, though. And Mary Henry says, what I'm sure is, is a very common response to High Noon, my dad watched nothing but Westerns. I think there was something about dads that make Westerns particularly appropriate. That is not to say that all Westerns are for dads, but I think it is to say that in part, all dads are for Westerns. If I can just abuse the English language to that point. So let's talk a little here um, about High Noon, released by UA on July 24th, 1952. It is perhaps most notable, superficially. I, I would argue, in fact, that this is one of the least interesting things that the movie does when you're actually studying the film, but it is most notable from a distance for having something like a an approximation of a real-time story. That is to say that the movie runs for 85 minutes and we cover broadly, you know, 85 minutes in the movie. It's actually a little more, I think. But the conceit of the film is in part that it will unfold in real time. And certainly by the time we hit... I would say probably the church sequence, which is my favorite sequence in the entire movie, apart from the ending. Um, by the time we hit that sequence, which is pretty much the midpoint of the movie, we are actually in real time. And certainly whether we are in real time or not, the presence of the clock, urgent and vibrant and, and, and conspicuous throughout the, the running time of the movie, never allows us to forget what is coming, that we are counting down to this terrible, terrible event, to, to doom coming into town on the noon train. Um, that is very, very effective. It um, cost $730,000. And it was just, I mean, you guys, it was just a studio picture. It was just another 1952 studio picture from UA. It wasn't supposed to be particularly impressive. It wasn't supposed to, you know, blow the doors off. It was just supposed to be another Western that would earn its money back. It did earn its money back. It actually earned in excess of $12 million uh, from the box office at the time. This made it a huge, 
huge success. You have to remember that uh, for movies at that time, there were simply so many more films that the margins were lower. Nowadays, a movie isn't a success unless it earns back more than three times its budget. That wasn't necessarily true in the 40s and the 50s, but certainly this was a, a howling success by any standards and actually received a fair amount of critical praise too. It won four Oscars that year, four Academy Awards that year, one, of course, for Gary Cooper for Best Actor in a Leading Role. We also got Best Film Editing, and there is a sequence at the end of this film, which is among the best edited sequences I have ever seen in any film ever. It is breathtaking. And the trick of it is so subtle that I think you you feel the trick of it before you ever notice the trick of it. And then once you notice the trick of it, you get to appreciate the sequence on an entirely different level. I'll talk about that when I get to it. It also won two awards, of course, for its music, two Academy Awards for its music, one for the score written by Dmitry Tionkin, and, and then, of course, for best music slash song by Dmitry Tionkin and Ned Washington for Do Not Forsake Me, Oh My Darling," sung in the movie by Tex Ritter. Um, it's a knockout song. It is a knockout song that I have been humming all morning, and which I can tell you too, just to pull back the curtain a little bit, Elizabeth has also been humming all morning, if not singing outright. It is just a great song and, and absolutely emblematic of this kind of Western story. There is a, a sense of its own class, uh, <laughs> a sense of its own classical root, I think. Not classical in the sense of, of, of you know, capital C class, uh, classicism, but but it, it emerges from the terrain. It emerges from Westerns as a genre already. It is a song that is defined already in its, in its root, but is also quietly subversive. This could not be a song from a 40s Western or a 30s Western or come to that, a 70s Western. This could only be the mid-50s, really. I mean, into the 60s a little bit, though those were really callbacks at that point. But this is a mid-50s Western with a mid-50s soundtrack with a mid-50s song, and that is vital, absolutely vital. Um, Angela says, yes, I've been humming the song all day too. It is impossible, impossible not to hum it, yes. Um, good, good, yes. Aaron says, I don't think they spent nearly as much on marketing back then. Certainly, that is... Um, that is one of the things that, that defines the, the studio system at that point was just we would throw movies at the screen because there was no lasting market is the thing. So novelty had to count for a lot. And the space that movies occupied in popular culture was, of course, much larger. So there really wasn't any competition and there really wasn't any sense in which movies were were anything but disposable. So we needed just so many movies. Now, Elizabeth is asking here in the uh, in the chat here about the um, about the writing of the movie, which is really, really interesting. And and honestly, not a little, not a little tragic, I suppose. It's um, I mean, this is a tough time for the studio system in particular. It is a tough time in the United States. 1951 is this movie was shot, 1952 as it was released. It was released right slap bang in, in the middle of July. This is a difficult time in America. The Red Scare is a problem. McCarthyism is rife. And the writer of this story, Carl Foreman, uh, was, while he was writing this script, already under subpoena to appear in front of the House Committee. He was supposed to to testify about his former associations with the Communist Party, and he was actually, unlike so many of the people blacklisted in Hollywood and so many people called before the House Committee on American Affairs, he actually was a former communist. 
Like that is legit. And he admitted that, but then he refused to name names and he was exiled. This was the last piece of work that Carl Foreman did in the United States because of, of the McCarthy witch hunts, which is tragic. It also led to the complete disillusion of, of uh, uh, dissolution, I should say, but also presumably disillusion of his working relationship with Stanley Kramer, who produced this movie, with whom he had worked for many years. Um, Kramer basically disavowed his relationship with Foreman and in the years that followed began to rewrite history, began to kind of pull High Noon away from Foreman and take credit for, for much of the writing, much of the, the conception of this story. It doesn't seem, though, as though that is entirely fair. It is thought that Foreman worked the script up. He, he actually came up with the original idea, and there does seem to be documentary evidence that it was an original idea, and then discovered, if I can find the, the reference here in my notes, because no one will remember this. Yes, then discovered a short story, John W. Cunningham's The Tin Star, which turned out to be very, very similar to the script that Foreman had already written. So just to be safe, and because it was the studio system at the time, they just purchased the rights to the Tin Star short story and then kind of adapted it. So though it says in the credits, based on the short story, The Tin Star by John W. Cunningham, that's not strictly true. It wasn't based on that story. It has some commonality with that story, but it was Foreman's story originally. And I can recommend too, um, let me find the... Um, let me find the note that I have here. I can recommend too. Yes, uh, there is a 2002 documentary, Darkness at High Noon, the Carl Foreman documents, which you can find online. You can find it in fragments on YouTube, at least. I've watched a little bit of it. I haven't had time to watch all of it, but it is very, very good. And it is basically an accounting of both the, the writing and the filming of, of High Noon, but then also the disastrous aftermath of High Noon after Foreman is, is um, effectively exiled from... Uh, from Hollywood, yes. I mentioned earlier that John Wayne considered this movie to be to be outright un-American, which of course ties back into allegations of of communist sympathies and and certainly a, a political commentary on the situation in Korea at the time. And though I'm generally sensitive to those kinds of readings, though I'm generally I, I'm willing to a certain extent to parse narrative through the lens of, of the culture at the time, I'm not sure that that is what I see from High Noon. I'm not sure that High Noon actually says anything about, about the situation in 1951 or, or 1952, or at least nothing more about that world than it does about the world that it seems to, that it purports to portray. It, it is a response, it seems to me, to Westerns. And it is in part a slightly cynical response to Westerns. It is in part a more modern response to Westerns. There's a really interesting way in which High Noon, as representative of the Western subgenre, intersects with the noir subgenre, which of course I just finished talking about in the last Point North one shot on Casablanca, wherein I argued that noir stories are about people who have fallen under the, the, the weight, the burden of a corrupt and unjust world, heroes who have fallen under a corrupt and unjust world, they know that the world isn't good, but they can't save it. They have been corrupted by it, so they seek to preserve what innocence and hope remains, usually in the form of an innocent young woman. The noir hero will almost always try to save the young woman, because not just because she is a young woman and therefore deserving of saving, 
a lot of noir stories were written in the mid 20th century, you guys, um, but also because the woman therein is, is representative of hope and of innocence and of virtue that can still be preserved. She hasn't been tainted by the world yet. We can still get her out and we can still save her. And I want to be clear, High Noon is not a noir story, but it is in open discourse with noir stories at least as much, I would say, as it is in open discourse with, with conventional Western movies. Because Westerns are frontier stories in general. Westerns are stories about about this, uh, specifically this westward expansion, of course, about new communities, about about the forming and the forging of new communities in a, in a, a landscape that is oftentimes uh, somewhat inhospitable. One of the interesting technical details about High Noon, by the way, is that the the film was actually bleached out a little bit. It is rated, I think, two points higher in terms of brightness. So if you put you probably won't notice this while you're watching High Noon, but if you put High Noon next to another 1952 Western and you look at the way that that the shadows are this inky black and, and the sky is just, it's white. It's just white throughout the entire run of the movie. It's oppressive. It's too bright. It feels burned out. This is all part of, of High Noon's visual language. It wants you to feel as though this this landscape, this this very existence is inhospitable, is 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 counterproductive in a sense that that we can try to forge civilization here, but it will always falter, that it will always, always fail. Yeah. Um, uh, Leslie McAdoo Gordon says in the YouTube chat, Wayne is wrong. He was reacting to the Times, though, of course. Yes, Wayne absolutely was wrong at the time. Um, there is an interesting uh, back and forth that you can read about online between um, High Noon, basically between this kind of perspective and a much more traditionally patriotic kind of perspective. We can question whether or not Kane is a patriot and whether that is even a meaningful question because... Here's the thing. I was, I was talking about frontier stories, and this will actually lead me back to the tangent that I just took, which is perfect. Because frontier stories require individualism. The frontier cannot be settled by civilization. We require exceptional people. Exceptional, they're not necessarily used as a superlative. We require people who do not fit into society to go and settle the frontier. And that process of settling then allows civilization to move in. And there is always, therefore, a tension between the unsettled land, the frontier itself, and civilization as a propulsive, all-consuming force behind it is vulnerable to live on the frontier. And that is true whether you are a pioneer in the American spirit, or I've just, of course, spent a lot of time thinking and talking about the Star's original series, Black Sails, which speaks to another kind of frontier. Here, the frontier of Nassau, the frontier of the, the Caribbean, the frontier of the New World in a general sense, but, but of pirate cultures specifically. Or you can turn this around and think about, you know, the frontier of Roman expansion across across Europe, uh, the the in the face of the unsettled barbarian tribes. Roman uh, Roman culture expanded, and that frontier was a always driven by malcontents, by exiles, by people who don't quite fit, but b always thereafter subsumed by the force of Roman culture and civilization itself. We can also think, of course, about uh, since I just threw out the word malcontent. We can also think about the the TV series Firefly. We can think to a certain degree about the TV series Star Trek. We can think about how Star Trek works as a frontier story. But all frontier stories share this this common kind of, of underlying principle that the frontier is forged by the people of the frontier, but the frontier will not always belong to the people of the frontier. 
And there is a sense in Westerns in general that that is how America was settled. We moved westward. We, we, we went west. We created new cultures, new communities, new, new spaces. We tamed the land. Again, not true historically necessarily, but certainly true in our conception of, of Western storytelling, Westerns storytelling. Um, we tamed the land and we created a space for civilization to, to inhabit which is fine, but there's always this sense that the civilized man cannot tame and the frontiersman cannot integrate. There is always a, 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 an underlying conflict there. And I mentioned earlier that, that high noon is what happens after that story. High noon is what happens after civilization has come in. Um, We've had our story here. We, we get all of these recurring beats through the movie. Hey, do you remember when this town wasn't fit for women and children? Hey, do you remember when a, a, a decent woman couldn't walk down the street in peace? This is the town of Hadleyville, a small town in, in the New Mexico Territory, long before it is, of course, uh, New Mexico. Will Kane has tamed this town. He has brought law and order and justice, and he still embodies law and order and justice. But the fact that he embodies law and order and justice is itself interesting because this is a movie that is striving to undercut our sense of law and order and justice. In the frontier story, in the traditional Western, our hero oftentimes embodies law, not always. He isn't always a lawman. Sometimes he's just a wandering stranger who comes into town and, and puts right what went wrong. He's, he's just a, a force of natural justice, if you like. But much more than being concerned with the law, our hero is concerned with what is right. But there is a tension in High Noon between what is right and the law. And we get a handful of different perspectives on this. The whole notion, first of all, that that Hadleyville is in trouble because Frank Miller is coming back because he has been released by he has been released, excuse me, by politicians up north. This idea that, well, we here in Hadleyville are not in control of our destiny, that this this scourge is going to be returned to us by people who don't know us and don't care about us and don't know Frank Miller come to that, that this is a, a bureaucratic decision that actually has nothing to do with, with natural justice, actually has nothing to do with good and evil. So there's that, that, the foundation of our entire story speaks to this conflict between good and evil, right and wrong. Yeah, I guess I would favor right and wrong more than I would favor good and evil since we're going to particularly look at, uh, look at what happens to Amy at the end of the movie. Um, right and wrong and lawful and unlawful, legal and illegal. We get the lovely beat when uh, when Will is in the saloon and he punches the guy. I mean, rightly so. He should do it. He punches the guy. But then the response comes, Marshall, you carry a gun and a badge. You should not be doing that. And Will backs down because he's right. This is the right thing to do. This is the morally right thing to do, but it is not the legal thing to do. And then, of course, we have the intersection with Amy's sense of justice, too. Even, in fact, the idea that Will is running around town trying to appoint special deputies. He's trying to give out these tin badges, which, in a number of different ways through the course of the film, we, we see really have no meaning except that meaning which is imparted to them. The badge itself just doesn't matter a damn. It just doesn't matter a damn. And ultimately, of course, is, is dropped in the dust as Will takes his leave of this town of of just contemptible people, I suppose, um, certainly from his perspective. Um, 
but he is he is scrabbling to put together a posse, but it is not, you know, a bunch. It is not just a posse. These are legally appointed special deputies because without that sanction, what they're doing is unlawful, even though, again, it would be the right thing to do. These guys are going to come into town and murder a whole bunch of people, including Will Kane himself. They are going to, as we see right at the end of the movie, loot. They're going to do, do terrible things. But in order to take action against them, we have to carry with us the the shield of law. You know, we have to be able to defend our actions because this is not, strictly speaking, the frontier anymore. This is what happens after civilization has moved in, has has subsumed the frontier. And at this point, of course, um, there is a note that this takes place, uh, I guess, in the late 19th century because of the number of uh, the number of stars on the judge's flag on the wall. My American history, I'm afraid, is is insufficient to tell you exactly which years. But I guess before New Mexico becomes a state, and while there are, I think it's 13 stars on on that flag. Um, so the, the the boundary of civilization is at this point still moving westward and, and moving northward too. Um, this is not to say that this is the final fight that will take place with regard to the coming, the, the encroachment of civilization upon the frontier. It is just one of, of you know, dozens of stories of this sort. And, and one of the most interesting things about High Noon, I think, is the way that it maintains this very small-scale conflict. The modern version of High Noon, the remake of High Noon, would have at some point one character turn to another character and say, but you don't get it, see? Because if Hadleyville falls, then what's to stop the next town from falling and the next town from falling? And before you know it, all of New Mexico will belong to these bandits. But High Noon doesn't do that because the stakes just don't have to be that high. We're just talking about this one guy, Frank Miller, who's coming back to the town that put him behind bars. He's coming back after the man who put him back behind bars. It is so much less a standard archetypal stock Western than it is a character piece. Yeah. Let me see here. As, as I'm, I realize now for the first time that I haven't looked at the, the YouTube chat in maybe 15 minutes. Um, <laughs> remember the Alamo we're going to hear. Yes. Um, Yes, Leslie says, individualism is the quintessential American value. I'd argue that we get a lot of that from our Scots ancestors. Certainly, there is a lot of overlap there. Yes, yes. Um, Good, good. Uh, Becca says, I think we all had some ancestors that decided uh, that where they were was too people-y. Certainly. And and that is true, I think, of, of, I mean as most of you know, I'm sure I'm currently talking a lot about American gods over on the Storms on the Way podcast. And one of the things that, that American gods speaks to directly is the immigrant experience, is the idea that that America is the the melting pot or the crucible or the tossed salad or whatever metaphor we're supposed to be using to describe this kind of progressive and deliberate multiculturalism here within the borders of the United States. Um, America is a town built on the immigrant experience, not a, a town, excuse me. America is a country probably a little larger than a town, built on the immigrant experience. Not on immigrants, necessarily, though, yes, I mean, also built on immigrants, but built on the immigrant experience. Because one of the most defining myths of America is the myth of America across the sea. It is the America that you come to. America remains the city on the hill, even after you reach the city on the hill. I think that that America as a beacon still speaks to people who are within its bounds. And that is true now has been true throughout the 20th century and is certainly true extending back to the the post-civil war period where where having reconciled itself with its own identity 
in large part, and that's a very complicated sentence that, that I would hesitate to say, you know, more forcefully than that. But having to some degree reconciled itself with its own identity in the wake of the Civil War, America began to move forward again with its, its sense of itself. It began to move forward again with, with this sense that the future belonged to the United States and in part to the United States alone, which is complicated, certainly by the time we get into the, the middle of the 20th century. Yeah. So individualism there um, is in tension a little bit with um, individualism is intention, of course, as it always is with society, you know, uh, the, the outlaw, the rebel, the Robin Hood figure, for example, always exists outside of society, but is still seen as a force for good. And that is a common trope in Western storytelling. What happens here with Will Cain, though, is very, very different. He was that guy. He was the lawman. He came to Hadleyville and, and made law, not in the sense of, of actually making laws, but he enforced this this safety he he made this town what it is he brought civilization with him and that was vital but now that that burning ragged edge of civilization the 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 sharp blade of civilization has been dulled it has softened into the comfort of civilization and hadleyville now is apparently doing pretty great the hotel used to be jumping when the town was full of bandits and now it isn't now it's very quiet now it's awfully genteel, but it is safe for women and children, for, for a decent woman to walk down the streets. This is what Will Cain has created, and we get this explicitly in the scene in, in the church. In fact, let me find the, because um, I took this quote because I love it so much, because the turn is just, just the worst. So the, um, the female parishioner stands up and says, what's the matter with you people? Don't you remember when a decent woman couldn't walk down the street in broad daylight? Don't you remember when this wasn't a fit, a fit place, excuse me, to bring up a child? How can you sit here and talk and talk and talk like this? How can you sit here and talk and talk and talk like this? What do you want, lady? You're complaining about us talking, but you're not urging us to actually take action. And if you go and watch that church sequence again, that is a common thread. I can't believe you people sitting around here saying these things. This is just terrible. I'll get my coat and I'll be outside. It'll be fine. I'm certainly not going to take part in Will Kane's, you know, posse of special deputies. I'm, I'm not going to contribute, but I am going to feel really bad about you guys not contributing. That's the worst thing. It's, it's that talk and talk and talk. So then we have the beat from the the minister who says, um, the commandments say thou shalt not kill, but we hire men to go out and do it for us. The right and wrong seems pretty clear here. But if you're asking me to tell my people to go out and kill and maybe get themselves killed, I'm sorry. I don't know what to say. I'm sorry. Another way in which this movie subverts expectations is in its treatment of religion. We're going to talk about Amy. Don't worry. We're, we're, we're holding Amy until our discussion of the end of the movie. But... Um, the the relationship between the town and its church and certainly will and the church is fascinating and it's fascinating long before we get to the church scene it would be easy too i think for the church scene to be full of hypocrites but it's kind of not i mean it is in a sense and it certainly is easy to see the people of hadleyville as as hypocritical as somewhat contemptible as definitely cowardly but this is not their fight. This is not their world. Even those who have been here since it was, even those who settled Hadleyville when it really was a frontier town, are now adjusting to the comforts of civilization. And they don't want to lose that. And that, I think, is a very understandable thing. Even Will Cain himself 
wants to give up. He's obliged to take part in this fight. But let's be clear here. If he left town with Amy and two weeks later heard that Frank Miller had been pardoned, heard that Frank Miller had been released and that he was on his way to Hadleyville, do we think that Will Kane would have come back? Do we think that this is personal in the way that people keep claiming throughout the course of the movie that it is personal? Because I'm not convinced by it. I'm not convinced by it. He is well aware that because the new marshal has not yet arrived, because the new marshal has not yet been signed in, that it is his responsibility. And that makes him feel when he's leaving, uh, leaving Hadleyville at the beginning of the movie as though he is running away. He is deserting his post. And that's crucial. But Will Kane is not a martyr. And this is not a personal fight for him. He still embodies... The, the, the legal system. He embodies the, the mechanism of civilization. He is a marshal. And then he is going to stop being a marshal. And then, crucially, he will not be a marshal anymore. Now, he says at the beginning of the movie, after he has taken off his badge, well, all right, it doesn't matter that I'm not wearing it. I'm still the marshal. But that's not because he is at his core, fundamentally, you know, the man, the marshal, Will Kane, that I don't think is true. It's simply that though the, the, though the ritual has been observed, the truth has not changed. But the truth will change when the new marshal comes in. I don't know. Do you guys disagree with that? Do you, do you think that Will Kane would have returned to Hadleyville if two weeks or a month or six months or a year from now he had heard that Frank Miller had been released and was looking for, for some kind of payback? Would he have gone back to Hadleyville, not to protect himself or to protect his wife, but to somehow fulfill some neglected part of his duty? Because, as I say, I don't see it. And this ties back, of course, to the end of the movie. We begin the film with Will Kane giving up his giving up his badge, his tin badge. And then at the end of the film, of course, he gives it up in a much more emphatic way. But I don't see that as a failure either. This is him rejecting this town. This town that has, in a sense, rejected him. I'm sorry, I got distracted from, from the, the account in the church here. I want to read the two-part discussion. This comes up from, from Henderson. And I'll just read the first two parts because this is beautiful. He says, What this town owes Will Kane here, it can never repay with money and don't ever forget it. He's the best marshal we ever had, maybe the best marshal we'll ever have. So if Miller comes back here today, it's our problem, not his. It's our problem because this is our town. We made it with our own hands out of nothing. And if we want to keep it decent, keep it growing, we've got to think mighty clear here today. We've got to have the courage to do what we think is right, no matter how hard it is superficially, we've got to have the courage to do what we think is right, no matter how hard it is. Superficially, this is the, this is the firebrand voice of the frontier. This is Henderson speaking to exactly the impulse that led to the settling of, 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 uh, of Hendleyville. I'm sorry, I just lost the name of the town from my memory there for a moment. This is what led to the settling of the town in the first place. This feels as though he has the support, though even then, not really. This is, again, uh, to, to recapitulate that quote. So if Miller comes back here today, it's our problem, not his. It's our problem because this is our town. Okay, fair, fair. I mean, Miller is coming back with the intent of killing Kane, so it's kind of Kane's problem too, but here Henderson is taking ownership of the town. He's saying, no, 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 forget this guy. Yes, he was a great marshal, is a great marshal, could be the greatest marshal in history, but this isn't his problem. This is our problem. And why is it our problem? Because we built this town with our own two hands. Except that's not true. Physically, that may be true. Socially, that is less true. Bureaucratically, civilizationally, 
federally, that is not true. Will Cain is the one who made the town safe. Thus, Will Cain is the one who made the town. The town is not the infrastructure. The town is the community. So even in that first paragraph, which seems to be, as I said, this firebrand voice of support for Will Cain, Henderson is, is setting the stage for what comes next. And the turn is just, uh, it's just the worst. He says, all right, there's going to be fighting when Cain and Miller meet and somebody's going to get hurt. That's for sure. So far, so good. The next sentence you're about to say, Henderson, right, is, so let's stand with our man and get these rascals, get these bandits, get these, these rogues out of our town. Now, people up north are thinking about this town, thinking mighty hard. Even this isn't necessarily problematic because we've thought about people up north. The politicians up north let Frank Miller go. They pardoned him, which seems to be a, a rank failure of, of the justice system. Thinking about sending money down here to put up stores and to build factories. It'll mean a lot to this town, an awful lot. But if they're going to read about shooting and killing on the streets, what are they going to think then? I'll tell you, they're going to think that this is just another wide open town and everything we worked for will be wiped out. In one day, this town will be set back five years and I don't think we can let that happen. What? What? The reason this isn't a wide open town is because of Will Cain. That is repeated so many times through the course of the movie. So many people both uh, applaud and crucially blame him for this not being a open town anymore. This is a respectable community now because of this man. But now if we let this man fight his fight, if we help this man fight his fight, if we help him do exactly that thing which led to the foundation of this community in the truest sense in the first place, then we'll endanger our community. So what is it that our community stands for? Is this a town of, of hypocrisy? Is this a town that has a, a moral cowardice? Have they abandoned their virtue? Well, no. Something has changed. Something crucially has changed. And it is the coming of civilization. This town was transformed by Will Cain when he took it from the frontier and placed it slap bang in the United States. He transformed it. The town, uh, and even if we don't want to necessarily give him individual credit, the town was transformed, let's say that, with the help of the deputies that he, he kept on staff at the time, with the help of the judge and, and the other kind of forces of civilization within the town. It has changed. So while we might not agree with Henderson, while we might feel this is contemptible, what are you saying? And we might be furious, as furious as Cain is when he leaves the church. And by the way, when he leaves the church and he passes the children playing, I guess not strictly tug of war because they don't have a rope, but they're playing a pulling game. These children who have been sent out of the church because they shouldn't hear this discussion are now outside basically replicating the, the fruitless and unproductive push-pull of that discussion in the churchyard. It's, it's unnecessarily good, you guys. It's unnecessarily good. I just love the little details like that sprinkled through the film. So while we might be furious with the response of the community, and of course, I'm talking a lot about the church because that is my favorite scene, but we can also talk about, about, about Lloyd Bridges, for example. We can talk about the ways in which all of these characters kind of, and, and we're going to get to Amy in a moment, as I said, we can talk about the ways in which all of these characters betray their calling. None of these characters rise up in the course of this movie, which is why at the end, Will is on the street by himself. It is a ghost town because he is the one man left standing as, as Miller and the others come back in. Yeah. Um, good. Let me see here. 
as I scroll back through YouTube chat to see everything that I've missed. I've been talking a lot, you guys, over the course of this, this lecture. I'm well aware that I'm not being as interactive as I normally am because uh, I, it turns out I have a lot to say. Yes. Um, yeah. <laughs> oh, we're talking about the tossed salad. Yes, no, I must admit, I heard this from, from Elizabeth was the one who said that this was the metaphor. The metaphor for the United States was the tossed salad in that, that, that it comes together to a greater whole, but unlike the melting pot, each individual component maintains its identity, right? Strong metaphor. There it is. I mean, also just good sandwich, I suppose. Um, uh, Rachel Miller says, meanwhile, uh, in Canada, sitting up here like, we're a mosaic. Civilization, in general, is the fight for a better metaphor. That is all politics, all ideology, all philosophy, all religion, all creativity, all art, all love, all human expression and endeavor is basically the fight for a better metaphor, the movement toward a better metaphor. And that is not to suggest that any of those things that I just listed are unimportant. It's just to suggest that metaphors are super important. Everything that we experience is filtered to a greater or lesser degree through metaphor. We cannot directly interface with the ground. When you touch the world around you, the nerve impulses in your fingertips are not sending back literal information about the world around you. They are sending back an abstraction of that information a metaphor of that information. That is, we are, we are cocooned away from the world in a pillow fort of metaphor. That is basically what human existence is. So when I say that, that all human endeavor is the fight for a better metaphor, that is, yes, not to diminish in any way any of those endeavors. Yes. Good. Okay. Uh, <laughs> oh, right. Angela calls out the most disappointing Sam ever used church as an excuse. All awesome, loyal Sams are frowning at him. I must admit, I chuckled again. I, I hadn't remembered Sam, but yes, I, I chuckled again watching that after all of our discussions of, uh, of, um, <laughs> of um, Sams of, of great stories recently. Yes. Yes, of course. Um, Angela's calling out too. Civilization is coming. Captain Flint. Oh, Black Sails, of course. And in my mind, Wednesday too. Yes. Yes. Uh, Leslie says, Lon Chaney breaks my heart in this movie. Yeah. How good are the performances in this movie, you guys? Let me run down the IMDb list here and see before. Well, okay, I do actually have a hesitation here. Um, hmm. I guess I'll talk about Lee Van Cleef first. Uh, Lee Van Cleef was offered the role of Will Kane. He was, he was told, no, hey, you unknown actor that we've just seen on Broadway, you can come and star in our movie. That would be great. However, that hook nose that you've got going on, that's going to have to change. Have a little cosmetic surgery, just a just a, a scotch, just a soupçon of cosmetic surgery, and you can be the hero in our film. And Lee Van Cleef said no. And this is his first ever uh, this is his first ever movie role. He plays Jack Colby. Of course, you guys know that because you know what Lee Van Cleef looks like. He doesn't have a line. Fascinatingly, if you go back and watch the movie, he never speaks. Doesn't matter. Still a completely magnetic presence in the course of this film. Just just wonderful. Um, I have to tell you. I know that she got a lot of uh, a lot of praise uh, for her performance in this movie. I don't love Katie Harado as Helen Ramirez. I, I don't know why. I just think that I think her performance is fine in a movie that is stuffed with with performances that are far better than fine. Though interestingly, opinion is split on Grace Kelly too. Alfred Hitchcock didn't like Grace Kelly in this movie. He said that he, he thought that she was, um, that he thought that she was fragile, that she wasn't bringing power to the role of Amy. I am not sure that I agree. I think she's actually, 
really very good indeed. Um, and, and of course, completely mesmerizing. Though, God, it is distracting, you guys, when you watch this movie. When Gary Cooper made this movie, he was 50 years old. When Grace Kelly made this movie, she was 21 years old. Now, rumors of the affair that they had throughout the shooting of this film have never actually been substantiated. We don't know for sure. We do know that Grace Kelly was absolutely enchanted with Gary Cooper, but we don't know that there was ever any kind of, of actual romantic affair. Gossip will tell you that there was, but to the best of my knowledge, to the best of my, my research endeavors here, we've never actually been able to confirm that. And it doesn't really matter because he's still 15, she's still 21. And when we open on the wedding sequence, it is a little distracting, not least of all, because Gary Cooper basically doesn't wear makeup in this movie. Uh, it was, it was, it was intended that he looked haggard and worried and panicked, that he is not supposed to be a heroic leading man, I suppose. I mean, he's clearly a heroic leading man, but, but he is not supposed to look like that. We're supposed to see him despite that, I guess is fair to say. So he looks 50 and she looks 21, but she looks 21 in like a movie way. And it's, yeah, yeah. Um, Oh, Elizabeth says that she didn't like Grace Kelly in the movie very much actually, uh, either, actually. Just seemed very green. I mean, which is fair. I liked Ramirez, though, continues Elizabeth. Was it Kate? Subtle performance. Uh, yes, uh, Katie Horado uh, played uh, Ramirez. That's really interesting that you found her performance subtle, Elizabeth. I have to say that, that I found her performance just impossibly blunt. Um, I couldn't believe her as a character because I felt she was reciting lines. Um, so, but... There you go. Your mileage may vary. Not everyone's opinion is going to be consistent throughout. Yes. Um, good. Good. <laughs> Leslie says, I think with regard to, uh, to Gary Cooper wearing makeup, he doesn't need to. He's gorgeous no matter what. Good Lord, that is a good looking man, right? I mean, just a good looking man. And uh, Lloyd Bridges too. What a preposterously good looking man. It's just suffused with, with, uh, with yes, impossibly uh, beautiful people throughout this movie. And yet, and yet it is still a really ugly and gritty and difficult movie in many ways. It, it, doesn't, uh, it doesn't fall into that Hollywood trap of, of being um, unreal in that sense, I would say. Um, okay, so I'm going to wind down. I'm, I'm moving toward, let me check if I've, if I've talked about everything that I had in my notes that I wanted to talk about. No, I haven't. I wanted to talk about the amazing editing that I mentioned earlier. This absolutely incredible montage sequence at the end of the movie. Now, this is when Kane, having been abandoned by everyone, it is maybe, I forget, maybe six minutes to 12, and he sits down at his desk to write his last will and testament, and we get a long shot of him, and then we get a long shot of, I think, the train station, and then we get a long shot of the church, and then we get this montage that lasts maybe a minute. There are maybe 20, 22 constituent shots in this montage, and we see the church, and we see the saloon, and the shots are framed almost without motion. They're almost still shots, but we hold on them as we move through the town and, and, and the street, and then, of course, the track. We keep coming back to this shot of the track as the camera lays on the track, watching this empty horizon, and the fact that we keep cutting away to that shot throughout the movie, the fact that we are emphasizing, no, 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 not yet. I just adore that conceit. It is also worth noting, too, that when the train finally shows up and is, is coming into town and the train whistle is sounding and there is black smoke billowing from the engine, that smoke is not supposed to be black. Steam train smoke is not supposed to be black. 
That steam train smoke was black because the train was flying, it was trying to slow down and was suffering from brake failure. They managed to get the camera, or at least the, the part of the camera that contains the film, they managed to get it off of the track before the rest of the camera and the camera tripod was hit by the train and completely destroyed. Just a little filming trivia there for you about High Noon. So this montage sequence that I'm so excited about, it is firstly just a beautiful montage sequence. Each shot is, is beautifully composed. We bounce around in time and space, and yet the sense of brooding tension increases and increases and increases and increases. But that is not what makes the montage work. The montage is immediately effective. It is emotionally effective. But the reason that the montage is effective is because it is literally metronomic. Is because every single shot in that montage sequence, besides, I think, the first two shots, I think the shot of, of Kane at his desk is a double-length shot, and the shot of the train station is a double-length shot. Every other shot in that montage sequence lasts exactly the same amount of time. It is a four-beat, and it is the four-beat provided by the swing of the pendulum in the clock in the marshal's office. So you can count each cut in that sequence. One, two, three, four, saloon. One, two, three, four, church. It is literally metronomic. And once you hear it, you can actually hear that tick in the soundtrack of the movie. And once, it, once that is evident, it will change the way that you watch that, that montage for the rest of your life. It is so unnecessarily good. And then the way, of course, that it is punctuated hard right at the end by the intrusion of the train whistle. It is just, it is, it is not concluded as much as it is torn apart by the intrusion of the train, as Hadleyville itself is not going to be concluded as much as it is torn apart by the intrusion of the train. You know, the, the noon train has arrived and now it's over. The waiting is done. The, the metronomic pace of the movie so far is now over. I just completely, completely adore it. Yes. Um, oh, Aaron G is taking off. I do apologize. Yes, yes. Um, yes, good. <laughs> I'm not apologizing for Aaron G taking off. I'm apologizing for not seeing that until now. Aaron G is taking off. Aaron M, luckily, is still here. We still have our necessary Aaron to continue the discussion. Um, he, Aaron M says, in fact... Um, Helen is also the only non-white woman in the town, and everyone hints at her love life. I can definitely see why she would be de deliberately keeping herself apart and unengaged from the town's events. This is true. This is not a commentary. My criticism, I guess, criticism, my, my lack of enjoyment regarding the performance is not a criticism of the character. The character is actually fascinating and extremely progressive. The fact that she can be... The fact that she can be a non-white woman who owns the hotel, who, who has a stake in, in the business, who is um, certainly, yes, there is speculation about her love life, but she doesn't demur from that speculation. She and Kane have been an item while he was Marshall, while he was cleaning up this town, this affair was going on, this relationship was going on, though. I say relationship as though, you know, we're not absolutely certain that this was a sexual relationship. You know, they were clearly very intimate. We see that in the scenes which they share together. And yet she is never demonized. She is not the bad girl. She's just a person who lives in this town. So I love the writing for, for Helen. I don't love the performance, but that, that's where I am. And apparently I'm, I'm not necessarily out on my own there, but I, I certainly don't speak for everyone. Yes. Good. Good. Yes. Um, as uh, Leslie says, yes, uh, perfect. Referring to the editing. Perfect. Of course, that's why it won the Oscar. Yes. I mean, this is this is so unnecessarily good. This is the kind of editing which would have been interesting had it been done in the late 1990s by Quentin Tarantino, had it been done, you know, by, by 
by a director who plays with the edit, who treats the edit like an art form. This is so ahead of its time. It's unbelievable. And of course, it's accompanied by so many other ridiculous shots through the course of the movie. All the shots of, of the track extending off to the horizon, the empty track extending off to the horizon, are just stunning. The, the, the numerous times that we get shots of Kane, which emphasize his dislocation, which emphasize his, his lack of attachment to the community around him. We will see him alone. He, he will be framed as though he is alone. And it's the kind of thing that might make you wonder after a while, well, wait, was Gary Cooper just on set when they shot this movie? Was, was he there with everyone else? Because there seemed to be a lot of what would be in a modern movie, you know, pickup shots. Here is the ensemble is all together. Oh, and here's a cutaway shot to, to, to Gary Cooper by himself. This is supposed to be happening at the same time, but I guess maybe he wasn't available that day. And of course, he absolutely was. They shot this, this movie incredibly quickly. I think it was one week of rehearsal and then four weeks of shooting to get this entire movie in the can, which speaks to the efficiency of the studio system at the time, as terribly destructive as many things about the studio system at the time were. Um, but we get so many beautiful shots. And of course, one of the most famous shots, and a shot that is both both replicated and parodied from High Noon is that uh, that reverse crane shot. Because traditionally, up until this point, we would use crane shots to situate the scene and then to bring the camera down into the scene. It would create intimacy because we would move into the scene organically with the, with the movement of the camera. We would emotionally match the camera's movement. Um, I guess we're having a bit of trouble here in the feed. I do apologize. Um, we have been having some internet trouble. I hope it isn't terrible. Yes. No. Okay. We're, yeah, we're getting some freezing. I do apologize. Of course, the, uh, the podcast version of this discussion will be available later and the YouTube version should still be good. Hey, we'll find out. Um, so we used, we, we had used conventionally up until this point, crane shots to bring the viewer into the scene, to bring them down. So we basically have an establishing shot and then our intro to the sequence in one fluid motion. What we get in High Noon, though, is a really interesting reverse crane shot where we start off really quite close to Will Kane, and then we're drawn up, 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 and away from him to emphasize his isolation. And this is one of the ways in which the emotional tenor of the movie is just so much more sophisticated than we might expect. It is, it is so much more subtle and personal and rooted in character than it needs to be. The actual plot of this movie is super simple, but all of the interesting interactions, all of the interesting movement of the story comes from character, comes from direct interaction. Yeah, yeah, good. Yeah, I do apologize. It seems as though our, our upload speed is not as good as it should be. Yes, I do apologize. As I said, the, uh, the uh, podcast version should be good. So anyway, I only have five minutes left, so I need to wrap up. Um, and I want to talk about Amy because, of course, one of the primary kind of thematic hooks right at the heart of the story is provided to us by Amy. We come into this movie with Will and Amy being married, being married, crucially not in the church, because Amy is a Quaker and thus a pacifist. We are led to understand that, that Will is hanging up his marshal's badge. He is, is giving up this life and going into business, you know, I was going to say with Amy, but let's face it, probably not with Amy so much as near Amy. He's going into business uh, rather than be a marshal, in part because of his wife's religious beliefs. This is very important. This is in part, too, why he decides to leave right at the beginning of the movie. But then he realizes, no, no, I've never run from anything in my life. I have to go back and fight for all the reasons that we discussed earlier. So we turn around and we head back to town. 
Oh, Leslie McAdoo-Gordon is calling out here. The crane shot and gone with the wind is like that from 1939. Yes, I, I certainly didn't want to suggest that that this is the first time that this crane shot has been used, but it is striking in a movie which which seeks to isolate a character, seeks to to emphasize the space around the character in the context of all the other shots and all the other the cinematic techniques which are used in order to isolate Will Kane. Yes. Um, let me see here. Um, so, so Amy is a pacifist. This, of course, gives us the division at the the midpoint, I suppose, of the first act, where they're talking, and <laughs> there is some, you know, conventional 1950s storytelling happening here. I don't have time to explain. You'll just have to trust me. And then we go back to town, and well, I guess I have time to explain. But if you can't hear me, and and ultimatums are flying left and right, and this is just the way that it is going to be, I guess. Okay, okay, it's fine. It's it's a little expository, but it doesn't really matter that much. Then we get this beautiful suspended arc from Amy throughout the movie because she and Will do interact, but interact almost peripherally to one another. Though, God, I love that moment when he shows up at the hotel and he thinks that she's changed her mind and she thinks that he's changed his mind. It is such a beautiful recapitulation of the core conflict. The the fact that we can circle back to this conflict and see that neither of them wants it, that they are both being driven by principle. They're both just so glad that the fight is over except the fight isn't over. And that's really hard. Then Amy goes and talks with Helen. She is having this entire kind of emotional journey that kind of matches or or mirrors, I suppose, Will's emotional journey too. He is steadfast in his principle, but finding himself suddenly without support. He finds that the town has moved on without him. And then on the other hand, Amy is discovering that, that equally steadfast to begin with, she is now realizing that there are perhaps limits to her commitment, limits to her principle, that she will fight for uh, for her husband, that she will fight for love. Guys, I'm so sorry. This this The internet has apparently let us down. Um, I'm just going to continue to wrap up. I may not have the YouTube chat with me for the last five minutes here, but as I said, the podcast version should be fine. So Will and Amy are on these differing courses. They arc away from each other. We, we start with them very connected indeed. And there is actually just a lovely moment. <laughs> While I was watching the film this time, I rolled my eyes as I roll my eyes every time at the, I'm going to practice an ancient rite during the wedding ceremony because, geez, movie, could you be a little more 1952? But then the very quiet scene that we get between Will and Amy in the next, in the next beat is actually rather beautiful. He tells her that he's just going to try. He's really putting her first. And it's intimate and it's personal and it's very, very effective. So they are completely united here and then they part. Then they arc away from each other and spend most of the movie apart until the very end. What do we learn about Amy? By her desire to take action, by her desire to wield violence in the protection of her husband. Do we applaud her Do we condemn her? How do we feel about... Because there is a perspective on this character and on this this conflict that speaks to that underlying hypocrisy. That, unfortunately, Amy just gave up. She didn't believe as much as she said that she believed. So she is actually a mirror for the town. Or we can see Amy as being someone who is inspired by her husband's frontier spirit to look past what is right or wrong and see, or or to look past what is legal or illegal in the, the religious sense, in the theistic sense here for her, to what is right or wrong, that she has here a higher duty, she has here a higher calling. The 
ambiguity of that ending. And also, we should say, it's not just it's not just firing the gun. It's not just the shot. It's also raking her nails down Frank Miller's face, opening him up to the shot that Will can take, which will, you know, resolve the primary conflict of the movie. All of that is beautiful. She is, she is really um, developed as a character throughout the entire arc. She has a point of view. She has a perspective and then has agency. I love what we do with Amy right here at the end. Um, I should also say, too, that the dropping of the badge seems to be some kind of acknowledgement from, I guess, I described it earlier as his response to this contemptible town, which is certainly true. I do think that this is Will saying, I'm done with you people. In my hour of need, in our hour of need, because it's not like Frank was just coming for me. He was coming for all of us, and I'm the one that stood in his way, and my wife and I are the ones that stopped him. In our hour of need, you didn't step up. Screw you guys. I am out. And he drops the badge. But I can't help but feel as though giving up the badge, because of the way that he gives up the badge right at the beginning of the movie, too, I can't help but feel as though it is also a gesture of support for his wife, that now he really is done. He has to stop being the marshal because he has to stop this life of violence because he is choosing her. His commitment is now done. His obligation is now over. And he is choosing her. Though crucially, <laughs> because this movie is shot almost in real time or it is made almost in real time, only an hour and a half has passed. An hour and a half ago, he was still the marshal until the new marshal was signed in. Now he is not the marshal. And that seems to me to be a very hard line that is defined in part by Amy's action. I am now at time. That is it. I am done discussing High Noon, though I've got to tell you, I am game for a live tweet of High Noon at pretty much any time. So if any of you are interested, I guess it'll probably be a week or two until we can... Uh, uh, pretty <laughs> Lesson says, can you hear Coop saying, screw you guys, I am out. Yeah, I mean, he'd have trouble with that line, but he was a very talented actor. I'm sure he could have delivered it beautifully. Um, that, I think, will do it, though. Yes, as I say, we, we can definitely organize a live tweet. Thank you so much, Leslie, for choosing High Noon for the topic of, of this week's uh, One Shot. Everyone else, you are all Patreon supporters, I think. So by all means, get in touch and let me know what you would like me to cover. If you support at the $20 a month level, you can just choose any text you like. I will look at books. I will look at movies. I will look at TV shows, though. You're going to have to be understanding about my time commitment in that sense. Uh, I will look at albums. I will look at operas. I will look at plays. I will look at musicals. I will look at whatever you want me to look at and then discuss it here during a Point North one-shot. I have to say, though, there is, as I mentioned earlier, a critical response to High Noon that describes it as one of the best Westerns ever made. And I do not think that is true. Because I think High Noon falls at the first hurdle in that regard. I do not think High Noon is one of the best Westerns ever made because High Noon is barely a Western in the traditional sense. What High Noon is, is a completely singular, completely unique, and undeniably classic piece of filmmaking. It belongs very near the top of anyone's all-time top 100. It is a barnstormer of a movie. It, it delves deeper into character than most modern movies do. It, it promotes and, and, and pushes the art of filmmaking further than, than most modern movies do. It is absolutely beautiful. I can't recommend it highly enough. Definitely go watch it. And it's like an hour, 22 minutes, which is also pretty great. Guys, thank you all so much for listening. Thank you so much for sticking with me through our bandwidth difficulties here. As I said, the podcast version will be available very soon and should work out just fine. Fingers crossed, I guess. I'll talk to you all again soon. Until then, take care.